Introduction of The Blue Poetry Book, edited by Andrew Lang. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Blue Poetry Book, edited by Andrew Lang. Introduction. The purpose of this collection is to put before children and young people poems which are good in themselves and especially fitted to live, as Theocritus says, on the lips of the young. The editor has been guided to a great extent in making his choice by recollections of what particularly pleased him in youth. As a rule, the beginner in poetry likes what is called objective art, verse with a story in it. The more vigorous the story, the better. The old ballads satisfy this taste, and the editor would gladly have added more of them, but for two reasons. First, there are parents who would see harm, where children see none, in Tam Lane and Clerk Saunders. Next, there was reason to dread that the volume might become entirely too Scottish. It is certainly a curious thing that, in Mr. Palgrave's Golden Treasury, where some seventy poets are represented, scarcely more than a tenth of the number were born north of Tweed. In this book, however, intended for lads and lasses, the poems by Campbell, by Sir Walter Scott, by Burns, by the Scottish songwriters, and the Scottish minstrels of the ballad, are in an unexpectedly large proportion to the poems by English authors. The editor believes that this predominance of northern verse is not due to any exorbitant local patriotism of his own. The singers of the north, for some reason or other, do excel in poems of action and of adventure, or to him they seem to excel. He is acquainted with no modern ballad by a southern Englishman setting aside Christabel and the ancient mariner, poems hardly to be called ballads, which equals the eve of St. John. For spirit-stirring martial strains, few Englishmen since Drayton have been rivals of Campbell, of Scott, of Burns, of Hogg, with his song of Donald MacDonald. Two names, indeed, might be mentioned here, the names of the late Sir Francis Doyle and of Lord Tennyson. But the scheme of this book excludes a choice from contemporary poets. It is not necessary to dwell on the reasons for this decision but the editor believes that some anthologist of the future will find in the poetry of living English authors, or of English authors recently dead, a very considerable garden of that kind of verse, which is good both for young and old. To think for a moment of this abundance is to conceive more highly of Victorian poetry. There must still, after all, be youth and metal in the nation which could produce the Ballad of the Revenge. Look now, the Red Thread of Honor, The Loss of the Birkenhead, The Forsaken Merman, How They Brought the Good News from Ghent to X, The Pied Piper of Hamelin, and many a song of Charles Kingley's, not to mention here the work of still later authors, but we only glean the fields of men long dead. For this reason then, namely, because certain admirable contemporary poems, like Lucknow and The Red Thread of Honor, are unavoidably excluded, the poems of action, of war, of adventure, chance to be mainly from Scottish hands. Thus Campbell and Scott may seem to hold a preeminence which would not have been so marked had the works of living poets, or of poets recently dead, been available. Yet in any circumstances, 
these authors must have occupied a great deal of the field. Campbell for the vigor which the unfriendly Leyden had to recognize, Scott for that Homeric quality, which, since Homer, no man has displayed in the same degree. Extracts from his long poems do not come within the scope of this selection. But estimated even by his lyrics, Scott seems, to the editor, to justify his right, now occasionally disdained, to rank among the great poets of his country. He has music, speed, and gaiety, as in the hunting song or in Nora's vow. For all the gold, for all the gear, for all the lands both far and near, that ever valor lost or won, I would not wed the early sun. Lines like these sing themselves naturally in a child's memory, while there is a woodland freshness and a daring note in, O oh, Brignall banks are wild and fair, and Greta woods are green. Young Lochinvar goes as undauntingly as wantonly to his bridal, as the heir of Macpherson's rant to his death, in a wonderful swing and gallop of verse, while still, out of dim years of childhood, far away, one hears how all the bells are ringing in Dunfermline town for the wedding of Alice Brand. From childhood, too, one remembers the quietism of Lucy Ashton's song and the monotone of the measure. Vacant heart and hand and eye, easy live and quiet die. The wisdom of it is as perceptible to a child as that other lesson of Scott's, which rings like a clarion. To all the sensual world proclaim, one glorious hour of crowded life is worth an age without a name. Then there are his martial pieces, as the gathering song of Donald Dew, and the Cavalier, and there is the inimitable simplicity and sadness of proud Maisie, like the dirge for Clarista by Maliger, but with a deeper tone, a stronger magic, and there is the song which the fates might sing in a Greek chorus, the song which Meg Merrilies sang. Twist ye, twine ye, even so. These are but a few examples of Scott's variety, his spontaneity, his hardly conscious mastery of his art. Like Femius of Ithaca, he might say, none has taught me but myself, and the God has put into my heart all manner of lays. All but the conscious and elaborate manner of lays, which has now such power over such young critics, that they talk of Scott's redeeming his bad verse by his good novels. The taste of childhood and of maturity is simpler and more pure. In the development of a love of poetry, it is probable that simple, natural, and adventurous poetry, like Scott's, comes first, and that it is followed later, followed but not superseded, by admiration of such reflective poetry as is plain and even obvious, like that of Longfellow, from whom a number of examples are given. But to the editor, at least, it seems that a child who cares for poetry is hardly ever too young to delight in mere beauty of words, in the music of meter and rhyme, even when the meaning is perhaps still obscure and little considered. A child, one is convinced, would take great pleasure in Mr. Swinburne's choruses in Atalanta, such as Before the Beginning of Years, and in Shelley's Cloud and his Arethusa. For this reason, a number of pieces of Edgar Poe's are given, and we have not shrunk even from including the faulty Eula Lume, because of the mere sound of it, apart from the sense. 
the three most famous poems of coleridge may be above a child's full comprehension but they lead him into a world not realized an unsubstantial fairy place bright in a morning mist like our memories of childhood it is probably later in most lives that the mind wakens to delight in the less obvious magic of style and the less ringing the more intimate melody of poets like keats and lord tennyson the songs of shakespeare of course are for all ages and the needs of youth comparatively mature are met in dryden's ode on alexander's feast and in lycidas and the hymn for the nativity it does not appear to the editor that poems about children or especially intended for children are those which a child likes best a child's imaginative life is much spent in the unknown future and in the romantic past he is the contemporary of leonidas of agincourt of benockburn of the forty-five he is living in a heroic age of his own in a phaeacia where the gods walk visibly the poems written for and about children like blake's and some of wordsworth rather appeal to the old whose own childhood is now to them a distant fairy world as the man's life is to the child the editor can remember having been more mystified and puzzled by lucy gray than by the eve of st john at a very early age he is convinced that blake's nurse's song for example which brings back to him the long the endless evenings of the northern summer when one had to go to bed while the hills beyond ettrick were still clear in the silver light speaks more intimately to the grown man than to the little boy or girl hood's i remember i remember in the same way brings in the burden of reflection on that which the child cannot possibly reflect upon namely a childhood which is past there is the same tone in mr stevenson's child's garden of verse which can hardly be read without tears tears that do not come and should not come to the eyes of childhood for beyond the child and his actual experience of the world as the ballads and poems of battle are he can forecast the years and anticipate the passions what he cannot anticipate is his own age himself his pleasures and griefs as the grown man sees them in memory and with a sympathy for the thing that he has been and can never be again it is his excursions into the untraveled world which the child enjoys and this is what makes shakespeare so dear to him shakespeare who has written so little on childhood in the midsummer night's dream the child can lose himself in a world familiar to him in the fairy age and can derive such pleasure from puck or from ariel as his later taste can scarce recover in the same measure falstaff is his playfellow a child's falstaff an innocent creature as dickens says of tom jones in david copperfield a boy prefers the wild prince and poins to barbara luthwaite the little girl who moralized to the lamb we make a mistake when we write down to children still more do we err when we tell a child not to read this or that because he cannot understand it he understands far more than we give him credit for but nothing that can harm him the half understanding of it too the sense of a margin beyond as in a wood full of unknown glades and birds and flowers unfamiliar is great part of a child's pleasure in reading for this reason many poems are included here in which the editor does not suppose that the readers will be able to pass an examination 
For another reason, a few pieces of no great excellence as poetry are included. Though they may appear full of obviousness to us, there is an age of dawning reflection to which they are not obvious. Longfellow, especially, seems to the editor to be a kind of teacher, to bring readers to the more reflective poetry of Wordsworth, while he has a sort of simple charm in which there is a foretaste of the charm of Tennyson and Keats. But everyone who attempts to make such a collection must inevitably be guided by his own recollections of childhood, of his childish likings, and the development of the love of poetry in himself. We have really no other criterion, for children are such kind and good-natured critics that they will take pleasure in whatever is given or read to them, and it is hard for us to discern where the pleasure is keenest and most natural. The editor trusts that this book may be a guide into romance and fairyland to many children, a child's enthusiasm for poetry, and the life which he leads by himself in poetry, it is very difficult to speak. Words cannot easily bring back the pleasure of it, now discerned in the far past like a dream, full of witchery and music and adventure. Some children, perhaps the majority, are of such a nature that they weave this dream for themselves out of their own imaginings, with no aid or with little aid from the poets, Others, possibly less imaginative, if more bookish, gladly accept the poet's help and are his most flattering readers. There are moments in that remote life which remain always vividly present to memory, as when first we followed the chase with Fitzjames, or first learned how the baron of Smailholm rose with day, or first heard how all day long the noise of battle rolled among the mountains by the winter sea. Almost the happiest of such moments were those lulled by the sleepy music of the Castle of Indolence, a poem now perhaps seldom read, at least by the young. Yet they may do worse than visit the drowsy castle of him who wrote. So when a shepherd of the Hebron Isles placed far amid the melancholy main. Childhood is the age when a love of poetry may be born and strengthened, a taste which grows rarer and more rare in our age, when examinations spring up and choke the good seed. By way of lending no aid to what is called education, very few notes have been added. The child does not want everything to be explained. In the unexplained is great pleasure. Nothing, perhaps, crushes the love of poetry more surely and swiftly than the use of poems as school books. They are at once associated in the mind with lessons, with long, with endless hours in school, with puzzling questions and the agony of an imperfect memory, with grammar and etymology, and everything that is the enemy of joy. We may cause children to hate Shakespeare or Spencer, as Byron hated Horace, by inflicting poets on them, not for their poetry, but for the valuable information in the notes. This danger, at least, it is not difficult to avoid in the blue poetry book. End of Introduction